Want to know more about alimony? Join us right now in this second part of our two-part series on alimony. Today's On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This on-air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today in this second part of our two-episode series on alimony, we dig deeper into how alimony works in Massachusetts, including what events following a divorce might change or put an end to an alimony award. We'll also discuss the ins and outs of alimony agreements, which parties may enter into as part of settling a divorce. If you haven't yet listened to the first part of our series on alimony, where we cover the basics of what alimony is and how it comes to be in a given divorce, you may want to go back and listen to that episode first. And you can find all of our On Air with Myrick O'Connell episodes at MyrickO'Connell.com, M-I-R-I-C-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. So without further ado, I want to welcome our very special guest, Tim Brockler, family law attorney with Myrick O'Connell. Welcome once again to On Air with Myrick O'Connell, Tim. Thanks very much, Howard. It's wonderful to be back. So last time we talked about the various types of alimony and how things like the amount and durational limits are calculated. But let's kick this off with talking about what a lot of people probably want to know. How does alimony end? Of course. That's a wonderful question. Anyone paying alimony is certainly going to want to know how they can stop. So there are a number of events in the alimony statute that lay out when alimony terminates. One terminating event that might seem rather obvious is if either spouse dies. Another event that terminates alimony is when the recipient uh, of that alimony remarries. And this rule that alimony ends uh, when the recipient remarries applies only to general term alimony. And like you said, Howard, probably a good idea if you haven't listened to the first part uh, where I uh, walk through the four types of alimony to go back and do so. But suffice to say that general term alimony is, is sort of the more typical type of alimony that we all think of. The remarriage of the person paying alimony, uh, incidentally, is really immaterial to his or her alimony obligation, but payers should not be dissuaded from remarrying um, because there's actually a provision in the law that income and assets of the payer's new spouse can't be considered if the issue of alimony, perhaps in a modification following a divorce, ever comes up. Another event that would terminate alimony, and we talked about it in the in the first episode when we discussed the durational limits of, of general term alimony, uh, and again, those can kind of range anywhere from half the length of the marriage for a shorter marriage to, to longer for lengthier marriages. Um, so someone paying alimony, once they hit those statutory durational limits laid out in the law, that would be a terminating event. Um, for their alimony. And caveat there that if the recipient can at that time make a strong case for alimony to be paid longer than the durational limits, that can potentially be ordered uh, by the court in certain circumstances. Another terminating event 
is that alimony terminates upon the payor attaining what's referred to as full retirement age. And word of caution, that's not when somebody uh, chooses uh, to retire. That term full retirement age is actually defined uh, by what age Social Security deems an individual to be full retirement age and qualified for full Social Security benefits. And so for most people, that's going to be age 67. Uh, although if you were born before 1960, it, it's a bit earlier than that, depending on the year that you were born, just due to the Social Security laws. And sort of same caveat here, too where an existing order uh, can be extended past full retirement age. Uh, but again, there has to be a good reason for that to happen. And something really has to have changed since that original alimony order for it to be paid past that retirement age. And kind of the last specific thing laid out in the statute is that alimony can potentially terminate. It's not a definite, but it can potentially terminate uh, if the recipient spouse cohabitates with somebody. And if it's not terminated because of that, uh, it might also be reduced or suspended for a period of time if the person receiving it uh, is cohabitating with somebody else. Great segue, because I was just going to ask Tim what cohabitation, quote-unquote, exactly means in the eyes of the law, because it does sound rather vague. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a vague term, although the alimony statute does try to pin it down a little bit. In order to show that someone is cohabitating such that it might be appropriate to reduce or terminate their alimony, the person that's paying the alimony has to show that uh, the recipient has maintained what's referred to as a common household with another person, and that has to have been for a continuous period of at least three months. And maintaining a common household means uh, generally that two people share a primary residence. And then the, the statute even lays out specific things to sort of consider when you're arriving at this decision about, you know, are these two people actually sharing a primary residence? Are they cohabitating? Because it, as simple as it sounds, that might not always be clear, particularly if you have people maybe trying to game the system a little bit and hide the fact that they are cohabitating together. Right. Some of the things that you would look for are representations that this couple might make to third parties, you know, regarding their relationship. Um, so whether that's to family or friends or postings on social media about their relationship would certainly be relevant evidence. Um, how the community perceives the couple is relevant. You know, is this a couple that everybody sort of thinks is married or assumes is married or, or mm -hmm. knows, you know, that they're sort of partnered and living together. Mm -hmm. The economic intertwinement of a couple, or if one of the people is uh, economically dependent on the other. And, you know, this you would look for, do they have joint bank accounts? Do they share expenses? And then kind of just like other types of conduct that might indicate that a couple is involved in a relationship that they're sort of furthering to something that we would sort of think of as a serious partnered relationship. Um, so, you know, involvement with each other's families. Does, does the couple vacation together? Do they have estate planning documents that consider one another? So it's, it's a really fact 
specific inquiry. Um, and it isn't simply enough to show that your ex-spouse getting alimony is dating somebody, but you really have to show if you're going to prove that they're cohabitating and that that's a basis for reducing or terminating the alimony, you really have to show that it's not just a dating relationship, but there's really an economic intertwinement there that is almost basically like they're married. Uh, so that's what the court looks for there with cohabitation. Other than these more specific events that you have talked about, Tim, just now that can end alimony or change it, are there other circumstances following a divorce where alimony might be changed? Yeah, absolutely. And when we talk about changing alimony, down the road after a divorce, after an initial alimony award, what that's called in the courts is a modification action. And there's a standard uh, that the courts have laid out and that the statute lays out for what you need to show in modifying a prior alimony judgment. And that standard is that the person seeking the modification has to show that there's been a material change in circumstances since the last order. And that change in circumstance, it's really got to bear in some relation to the financial circumstances of the parties. And to, to be a little more specific, the change that you're looking for, it really has to play into and impact either the payor's ability to pay alimony or the recipient's need for the alimony. So when we think about a payor's ability to pay alimony and what might change down the road uh, with that ability to pay, probably the classic example is someone loses a job or they have a pay cut. And, you know, certainly when COVID hit, that was a very common issue that came up. You had companies laying people off or otherwise reducing their pay. And so that's obviously going to affect the payor's ability to pay an alimony order if their income goes down, because that alimony order would have been based on their prior higher income. Perhaps the payor's expenses have increased significantly for some reason, and that could affect their ability to pay alimony and warrant a decrease. Uh, and then on the flip side of this, if a payer sees a notable increase in their income since the initial award, you might find that the recipient spouse is arguing to increase their alimony and, and modify that based on the payer's increased income. And then the other type of modification that I mentioned with alimony cases involves situations where a recipient's needs have changed. And a payer might seek a reduction if his ex-spouse's living expenses have decreased or if the ex-spouse's own income has increased such that his or her need for the alimony is no longer what it once was. And so similarly, the flip side of that might be the recipient who um, whose needs have gone up and, and increased since the time of the initial uh, award. And that might be due to their own loss of job or maybe their expenses have increased for, for instance, due to unusual medical issues or something like that. So, so modification, they, they, they really run the gamut in terms of what circumstances might have changed uh, since an initial alimony award. And like all of these cases, they're, again, very factual cases. Um, but, but when we're talking about 
alimony. I guess sort of the take home is that um, where, where the income and, and needs at the time of the initial award is what you're going to look at. And then, you know, certainly what those um, needs uh, of the recipient and what the, what the respective incomes are now to sort of compare what's changed. Tim, uh, throughout these two episodes on alimony, we've talked about what the alimony law provides for and how courts apply the law in particular cases. But for people getting divorced, is there any way that they can agree to alimony in ways the law doesn't necessarily provide for? (laughs) And also, is that a good idea? (laughs) Uh, That's a really great question. And and my my answer is a resounding absolutely if it's if it's done well um, and and so so even though the alimony statute it provides a lot of guidance and it provides a lot of guidelines um, a court fashioning an alimony award is still somewhat limited there's going to be an amount of alimony awarded and it's going to be based on the circumstances at that particular moment and it usually ends up being in line with what the statute provides resolving anything in the divorce by agreement is generally good it saves on um, a tremendous amount of money being spent on fees and it also puts the control um, into the hands of the parties rather than than the court and that's a good thing uh but, but the really great thing about um, doing an, an, an agreement for alimony outside of court is that we can be much more creative than the court can in structuring alimony. We can anticipate to some extent and agree what might happen down the road if something changes uh, with regard to the, the couple's circumstances. And so saving that couple the headache of one of them having to seek a modification in the, in the court if something changes after a divorce. One example um, that I can think of of where an agreement is, is better is, is maybe for a payor who has um, varying types of compensation. And an example of that might be like income from stock options or other type of equity forms of pay mm-hmm. uh, that they receive. Income from that type of compensation, it's certainly fair game for the purposes of alimony, but oftentimes there's quite complicated tax ramifications associated with that type of income. And an alimony agreement versus a court order for alimony can really deal with that type of unusual income and how it gets worked into to the alimony payment and some of the tax issues uh, that pop up with that type of income in a much fairer way. Um, another example would be where you've got one or both people's incomes that fluctuate year to year for whatever reason. And often an agreement can be much more creative and practical in terms of just the mechanics of how alimony gets paid and calculated uh, on a year to year basis when you've got maybe one or two people who don't have a consistent income year to year. Something else uh, agreements can do that courts won't do are uh, what we call self-modifying alimony agreements. And so, you know, you might agree that if a payor's income decreases by 10% for two years in a row, that alimony will, 
will decrease by a certain amount. Or you might say that if a recipient's income exceeds a dollar amount for X number of years in a row, that alimony will be reduced or terminated. And, you, you know, you can't anticipate every single future event. That's just impossible. But if there are some things like that that you can do in certain cases and, you, you know, you can sort of get a sense in certain cases of things that might change down the road, you can work that into an agreement. And then what, what that will do is save a major headache for folks down the road um, if if things do change and, and not having to revisit it in court because it's in the agreement. Another thing that you can do with agreements is make uh, what's called a surviving alimony agreement. An alimony award in a divorce judgment, as well as an agreement um, for alimony where the parties specifically, it's called merge that agreement into a divorce judgment, and that's a real particular term, merge. Those alimony awards um, can always be modified by the court down the road, and it's that standard of is there a material change in circumstances like we discussed. But in an alimony agreement, the other option you can do is have the alimony provisions of that agreement uh, survive. And that's, that's, again, sort of the particular term survive rather than merge into the divorce judgment. And when alimony provisions survive, it means that that is instead a final resolution on the issue of alimony that the court cannot modify down the road, even if circumstances do change. And most often when you do a surviving alimony agreement, it's often when couples are waiving entirely their respective rights to alimony and to ever come back uh, to seek alimony from the other. And in, in short marriages with younger people, especially, this is actually pretty common um, because, you know, in those circumstances, it's very important to both people to, to sort of lock in that deal that you don't want to have to worry about their ex coming back and seeking alimony. Um, when you have a situation where alimony is being paid and that is going to continue for a long period of time, you're, you're generally not going to do this surviving locked-in agreement that's going to be locked in forever. Because if you're the payor and you lost your job, you'd really be out of luck um, in not being able to seek a modification of that alimony if you agreed to this sort of final surviving type alimony agreement. And and I, I will say to you, there's a rare exception to the idea that you can't ever revisit a surviving alimony agreement. And that's where, where one of the ex-spouses, you know, would basically become a public charge if they were held to the agreement. And so there, there's been cases where people did surviving agreements, completely waiving alimony. And then there'd be a situation where a court would actually step in and order a former spouse to pay their X an amount of, of alimony because that X uh, was so destitute and poor that they were on public assistance, hmm. um, even though they had done this this surviving alimony w- waiver. So, it, but but again, that's a rare case, and so you you would really need extreme extreme circumstances and facts uh, to to change that surviving agreement. And then the last thing that for me comes to mind um, when I think about alimony agreements that that and, and what you can do with alimony agreements that a court 
can't do. And also related to this idea of surviving alimony um, agreements and, and finality that people want um, is actually what's known as an alimony buyout. I was going to ask you about that. What is an alimony buyout? Alimony buyouts are um, a lump sum and usually a one-time payment made from a spouse Mm -hmm. who uh, would otherwise have an alimony obligation to the other spouse. And that lump sum payment is in satisfaction of that entire alimony obligation. And so generally how that works is we come up with an idea of the total amount of alimony that a person uh, might pay over the course of their obligation. And we then apply a discount rate to that, which can sort of be a negotiable item just in terms of the, the rate that you apply to that. So the lump sum will actually be a lesser amount than what the total would be over Time, but that's fair and appropriate because the the person receiving the lump sum is getting it all up front now. So there's some value to that. Um, often an alimony buyout amount can be uh, figured into the property division where what would otherwise be, let's say, a 50-50 division of assets. You'll have a 50-50 division of assets, but with that alimony buyout figure, then shifted over to the alimony recipient. You know, I will say, too, it's usually only something that that is achievable when parties have the, the assets there to accomplish that buyout and, and, and come up with that figure. But it's, it's really just another way for people who want finality and don't want to be tied together for years after a divorce with an alimony obligation. And, you know, payers like it because it gives them the freedom to, to sort of go out and earn whatever they want. To without have, having to worry about their ex-spouse uh, having a cut of that or seeking more support down the road. Uh, and recipients like it because they don't have to chase down their ex-spouse for support or worry if their spouse's income goes down, that their alimony is going to go down. There's risk in it for both parties because you're, you're basing the buyout figure on an assumed income for right. a period of time and, and, and an assumed amount of alimony for a period of time right. when things might change in, in reality where the, the payer doesn't earn that income that was assumed or maybe the recipient, um, may, maybe they gave up a lot of upside that their ex went off and, and earned after the divorce. But, but in cases where this can be done, those risks um, can often be worth just the peace of mind of not being tied together for years with an alimony agreement. Um, it's a very, the type of thing, it's just a real personal decision for some people. And some people just put a much higher premium on never having to deal with their ex-spouse again. Um, so yeah, so, so yes. that can be another, that can be, yeah, that can be another good, good thing uh, to do in an agreement um, as, as a court can't do that. And that can't be achieved in court. So, Tim, we talked last time about some of the recent tax law changes that affect alimony. Can you briefly remind everyone what those changes were? And also, will anything change now that we have a new administration in the White House? Sure. So, reminding as, as to what the, the tax law changes were, um, for, for many, many years, um, decades really, alimony had this preferred tax treatment where 
um, pay or deducted alimony payments from his or her income. And then the former spouse receiving the alimony uh, claimed those alimony payments as income. And what that does, what that deductibility to the payer does, uh, it's a way for income to get shifted from a higher tax bracket of the payer down to the recipient's lower tax bracket. And so overall, uh, there's less taxes being paid. Trump's tax law changes eliminated this kind of preferential tax treatment, if you will, and alimony is no longer deductible to the person paying it, and the recipient doesn't report it as income. So what this has done in the divorce field, it's it's changed how we calculate alimony and what percentages of a payer's income we might look at for nailing down an appropriate alimony amount. Biden has definitely laid out rolling back a lot of Trump's tax changes, uh, but that does not... Uh, presently include restoring the deduction for alimony that was available for many years prior to Trump changing the tax laws. Hmm. So I think there may be some changes to higher income tax brackets or uh, capital gains taxes, for instance, which are, are issues really any divorce practitioner has to consider when thinking about things like property division and alimony, but really this more major issue of uh, alimony no longer having the preferred tax treatment anymore uh, really seems like something that's here to stay. Interesting. I wasn't sure about that, whether it was something that was here to stay. We've been talking about alimony, and this has been part two of a two-part series that Myrick O'Connell attorney Tim Brockler has prepared for you, the listener, to explain all the ins and outs of alimony. If you have not listened to part one, go back this is an assignment, go back to the Myrick O'Connell website. That's where all of our podcasts can be found and listened to. M-I-R-I-C-K-O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L dot com. And there they are. And you will find part one of Alimony. Tim has just delivered part two. Tim Brockler, how can folks reach you if they have questions or concerns about Alimony? Uh, sure, Howard. Uh, my phone number is 617 391 2164. Uh, email is also always good, and that is T B R A U G H L E R, and that's at myrickoconnell.com. I want to thank you very much for putting the time into not only this episode, but part one of Alimony, because it's much more nuanced, more so than I think a lot of folks, including myself, had assumed. So I really appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure, Howard. Thanks, Tim. On behalf of Tim Brockler and the law firm of Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 